Well, good morning, Covenant Baptist Church. Is that too loud? It is a blessing and a privilege to be sharing with you this morning again out of the book of Jude as we draw this short and powerful book to a close. If you are able, open up to Jude this morning. This morning we're going to be looking at two verses in this exhortation which Jude concludes his epistle. We're going to be looking specifically this morning at verses 22 and 23. We've worked ourselves up to this point and I'm going to begin reading at verse 17 for context. The topic of today's sermon is going to be Christian growth and sanctification. We're going to be looking at these two verses in three headings. Heading number one is going to be entitled Compassionate Action. Compassionate Action. With heading number two, Aggressive Action. And heading number three, Cautious Action. So we have action on our mind today, what we are to do, an imperative of God to us this morning, compassionate action, aggressive action, and cautious action. I trust you're open to Jude with your finger on verse 17. Read along with me the word of the living God. But you, beloved ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers, following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And here's our verses under consideration this morning. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. This is the word of the living God. Let us pray and ask for his help this morning. Oh, Father, we come before you in need of your help. You have provided for us spiritual food this morning. Would you, Lord, by your grace, help us to digest it? We ask in Jesus' name, and we all say, Amen. Amen. Growth is an amazing thing. In fact, I would say it's a miraculous thing. The fact that anything grows is a testament to the power of God. The first time anything ever grew was in the beginning of the book of Genesis, when God said, and it came to be. When God said, let vegetation grow forth from the earth, and it grew. 
Yes, growth is a miracle, and it shows the power of God. I'm reminded of our Savior's words, unless a seed falls into the earth and dies, it will never bring forth fruit or grow. This makes me recall a science experiment that I did when I was probably in the third grade. And I would assume a lot of the children here have done science experiments. I don't know if you've done this one, but it has to do with growth. And it has to do with plants. And I remember we had a seed and we brought it into the soil. And by God's grace, it grew after receiving the proper amount of light, the proper amount of water. But that wasn't the experiment. The experiment was to have two seeds and to have two plants that grew from those seeds and to put one in a lighted area and to put the other in a darkened area. Now, in my school, we had lockers, like the old kind that were metal, and I had a plant in a locker. And I remember giving that plant water in the locker, giving the plant water on the windowsill where it got sunlight. And surprisingly, each one grew. But the growth was not equal. They both grew, but they did not grow alike. Now, with that in mind, I want to recall your Christian life. I want you to recall your spiritual growth. If you are a Christian sitting here today, endowed with the Holy Spirit, gifted by Him, you are growing. The Holy Spirit is working and alive and active in all of the elect. God is in the business of conforming His children into the image of Christ. But not all of that growth in this life is the same. Oh, praise be to God, we will all be glorified. That even the weakest Christian among us will be glorified at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. But our spiritual growth is not static. Our spiritual growth depends upon the means that are used to provoke it. But take comfort, Christian, that the Lord is growing you. Whether you're that plant in the locker that is malnourished from sunlight and weak and feeble, translucent in color, or whether you're, whether you're that plant on the windowsill that is vibrant green, full of leaves, yes, God is bringing the growth. That's his work. We know the verse as well. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Or work out your, fear, your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Yes, our Christian growth ultimately is the work of God. But again, it's not static. This makes me think of the second law of thermodynamics, which states that a closed system will remain the same or become more disordered over time. Now, applied spiritually, and we know as followers of Christ, that we are never to live in a closed system, Rather, we are commanded by God not to forsake our gathering together, as sadly some followers of Christ are in the habit of doing. And one reason for this is so that we can comfort one another as we see the second coming of our Lord getting closer each and every day. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 10. But it's also for our growth. Besides knowing the danger of living in a closed system, we also know, and many of us know from experience, that if we are in such isolation, one from another in the church, there is no chance of us growing healthy. 
let alone remaining the same in a static condition. So in other words, the second law of thermodynamics foolishly is optimistic as it concerns our sanctification. Because we will not remain the same. As one theologian has rightly said, the Christian life must never stand still. If it does, it will go backwards. It will not stay static. It will go backwards. Now this is exactly the ethos of the concluding section of Jude's epistle, which we're in this morning. Since God is the one working in us, and he has gifted us with his word, which centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we are called to fix our eyes on him, on Jesus, to remain in him and bear much fruit. Jude makes the vital connection of our spiritual growth to our hope in Christ. This is the context of our passage today. Jude said in verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. That's the context. But after we give special attention to ourselves, as verse 20 is demanding, Jude now wants us to not forget those around us in the church, those desperately in need of our help and our attention and our love. And the Holy Spirit, through Jude today, will teach us Christ's desire for us in building his church as agents of mercy. Here's the point. As those of us here today who have received mercy, we are to show mercy to those who are in desperate need. So with that in mind, let us look at our first heading. Heading number one, compassionate action. As we consider what the Holy Spirit says to us this morning on verse 22. And have mercy on some who are doubting. We are to be Christ-like towards the faint-hearted and have mercy on some who are doubting. Now here in verse 22, we're brought, to, we're brought by Jude to the first group of saints who we all need to give special attention to. And these two verses, he's going to show us three different categories, three different categories of saints who are in need. And here in verse 22, we're brought to the first, those who are doubting. Jude begins this charge by exhorting the faithful that he just reminded of the mercy that awaits them at Christ's return. Jude is stirring up the Christian affections of his beloved hearers by giving them an imperative and have mercy on those who are doubting. After the previous glorious declarative statement wrapped up in hope, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. That was verse 21. So simply put, Jude, like his brother James, desires the flock of God to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. You can see his brother James in chapter 1, verse 22 of his epistle. And what better way is there to accomplish this than by stirring up our love for Christ 
mingled with the eager hope of his return. That's what Jude did. Jude simply assumes the identity, by the way, of this doubting crowd within the church. He expects his audience to know exactly who he is referring to. Who are the ones who are doubting in the church? Jude expected his hearers to know exactly who he was speaking of. We were introduced to them, by the way, previously in this epistle. Look at verse 16. Those who were being flattered by the false teachers. That's the group. Look at verse 19. The ones who were the casualties of the many religious divisions brought about in the church by these ungodly men. This is the group. Make no mistake, Jude is not pleading here for Christian charity on behalf of those savage wolves who were now feeding on the flock, but rather on account of the little lambs who are being devoured by them. Let's look at a cross-reference. Turn to 2 Peter if you're able. We've looked back to 2 Peter often for it's a parallel text to our passage and our text in Jude. Look to 2 Peter chapter 2 and look at verse 18. Peter is talking about these same false teachers who Jude was warning about in his epistle. The only difference, if you recall was in Peter, he was saying they were going to come. And in Jude's epistle, they're already there. Peter, in verse 18, speaking about these false teachers who had crept into the church, says, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. You can hear the smooth words of these false teachers ringing in the ears of those who have been led astray. And I would argue, and I think Jude is arguing, that those who are doubting in the church are among this number. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them, and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. What a sorrowful depiction of those who were being led astray, who were called out of darkness into the light of Christ, and now are being led astray again by false teachers who had crept into the church. Peter says it will be worse for them in the end than it was before them in the beginning. It almost sounds like what Jesus said about those who are possessed by demons. Hebrews 10 says something very similar. Hebrews 10.26, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, could this be the group that is doubting? And there, is, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Now, as we work through these arguments, these categories, these three people groups in the church that Jude is writing about, we'll see how that Hebrews passage directly connects. Maybe not to this first group who are doubting, but to the groups that follow, that are sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. To whom much light is given 
much is required. The more you know about the gospel, the more you know about the truth, the greater your judgment will be if you reject it. We are to have mercy on some who are doubting. Now, this idea of doubting is often accompanied in Scripture in our English translations with a word wavering. Wavering or doubting is communicating the same thing. And I think this is what Jude is saying. There were those in the church that were wavering. They were doubting. So let us look at this word. Noah Webster, 1828 Dictionary, says, Doubt is to waver or fluctuate in opinion, to hesitate, to be in suspense, to be in uncertainty. To be in uncertainty respecting the truth or a fact. To be undetermined. Have you ever met a Christian like that? Maybe you have someone that was weaker than you in the faith and you were coming alongside of them to teach them something about doctrine. We've talked much about doctrine in this epistle. And they were wavering. They were doubting. I don't know if that's what the Bible teaches. I don't know if that's the God that I worship. I don't know if that makes sense in light of my tradition. Here's Jesus on doubt. Matthew 21, 21. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, which was withered, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. So from our Lord's understanding of doubt, what is the counterpoint to doubt? What is the opposite of doubt? Faith. Faith. Listen to Jude's other brother on doubt. Hope you see what I did there. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Do you see how doubting is the opposite of faith? This is the condition of those in the church in this first group that Jude is saying, we should have mercy towards them. Listen to this quote by Ralph Venning, a Puritan. The devil sometimes tempts us to sin. And that causes us to doubt. And sometimes the devil tempts us to doubt. And that causes us to sin. You see, doubt and sin work together. And it is often the tool of the evil one in the life of a Christian. So how are we to treat those who doubt in the church today? Remember what I said from the beginning. Those who have found mercy in the sight of our God should show mercy. What a contradiction it is for us who have found mercy in the sight of God to not show mercy to others in God's house. Now let's take it personally. Have you ever doubted? Doubting the truth of God's revelation? 
doubting the truth which has once and for all been delivered to the saints? Brothers and sisters, I hope you're all saying yes, because it is a common condition of the fall. Even after we're saved and regenerate and brought to life and adopted by God and united to Christ, we must say with that father in Mark chapter 9, I do believe, help my unbelief. The disciples were doubtful. Read the Gospels. The apostles were doubtful. Think of Peter. Even eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ were doubtful. See Matthew 28, 17. We have all doubted and have been proven to be weak in the faith at one time or another. Some of us may still be. Yet Christ has compassion on us, brothers and sisters. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we should be compassionate and patient towards all. But especially, especially the religiously abused who are weak and uncertain, and as one commentator put it, beset with inner doubts. May we never use our spiritual progress as a club to beat somebody over the head with. May we never stand prideful with our chests puffed up as if God has done a greater work in us than someone else. For it is He who works in us. And how dare we say that by our own efforts we have something to brag about. It is Christ who gets the glory. And if you're going to brag, brag in Him. And that brings us to a second category. Those who are faint-hearted in the church, who are wavering, who were doubtful, who needed gentle, compassionate action, now gives way to a second group in whom require aggressive action. Verse 23, Jude says, save others. This is a different group. Do you see it? Save others, snatching them out of the fire. We are to be Christ-like towards the perishing. As I thought about explaining this verse, I was reminded of what our Lord said to the church in Sardis in the book of Revelation. Open up there if you're able to Revelation chapter 3. This is a group that is more devolved than the first. They not only need compassionate action, but aggressive action. Why? Because their state is worse. This is what our Lord says to the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, say this, I know your deeds, listen, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. 
For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God, so remember what you have received and heard. Sounds interesting. It sounds very much like what Jude says at the beginning of this section. Remember what was taught to you by the apostles. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it. And what? Repent. Repent. This is the group that needs to hear this. Repent. Those who need snatched out of the fire. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come. But you have few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. That will come up again in Jude in these two verses. This idea of stained and filthy garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Those are those who are not in this category who need saved. This is probably the remnant in Sardis. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you hear? Is the Holy Spirit teaching you the connection between this and Jude? It could very well be that in the context of Jude, this group here which needed to be saved snatched from the fire, had already left the covenant community and had joined themselves to these false teachers. And they needed to be snatched out of the fire. There are many Old Testament illustrations when we get to this idea of snatching out of the fire. And I think in light of what Jude has said, there are two passages that he's already brought up that echo this. Number one is Zechariah. We're going to get to Zechariah later in this, in this study here. But I want you to turn to Amos. Turn to the book of Amos, that well-worn book in your Old Testament. Amos chapter 4. Here, the Lord is rebuking national Israel for their unbelief. Again, we need to take aggressive action against those in the second group in the church because of their unbelief. Here is God rebuking national Israel for their unbelief as a type of the church. And I want you to look. You can certainly read all of chapter 4 for a greater context, but I want you to look at, at verse 11 in chapter 4 of Amos God says this, I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze or snatched out of a fire. Here we have an allusion to Sodom and Gomorrah or a direct reference rather to Sodom and Gomorrah which Jude has already specifically brought up earlier in this epistle. But here we have this saying. And in the Old Testament, this was a saying. A brand plucked out of the fire. A firebrand snatched from a blaze. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Israel. 
For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. Who were this second group in danger of violating and sinning against? The Lord who makes the mountains. The Lord who creates the wind. The Lord who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth. This second group is indeed in fear of judgment. Echoing what Jesus said to the church at Sardis. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. That New Testament warning should have this Old Testament warning ringing in its ears. So with the second group, those who are perishing, those whose condition is much worse than those who are doubting, wavering. We must be Christ-like and call them to repentance in view of their condition. And it's an urgent condition. We may have a lackadaisical approach to some, some who we may know, who are in this second group who need to be snatched out of the fire and saved. But we're timid. And we find excuses. Because, well, God will do that work. He doesn't need me, and I don't want to offend them. I don't want to push them further away. But we're called to save them. Not as the author of their salvation, but as the instruments of it that God would use us to snatch them out of the fire. There are many cults and isms that have been abusing those who are religiously minded. We must have mercy, but also save them, snatch them out of the fire. Listen to what Adam Martindale says. We must venture upon men's displeasure rather than neglect our duty. We must be wise as serpents and yet gentle as doves. And yet we ought not make excuses for not being bold for our faith, for that which we know is true, if we rightly understand the urgency and the spiritual condition of those who are in the second group those who are perishing. Thomas Watson said, the time of life is the only time we have to work for God. Heaven is a place of receiving. The present is a time of doing. How true that is. But there's a third group. Not just some who are doubting, not just some who need to be saved, snatched out of the fire, but a third group. Look with me at verse 23b. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment 
polluted by the flesh. Jude again encourages mercy, but this time added with fear. And it's for a reason. This third group is so polluted that they can be dealt with only in cautious compassion to avoid contamination by their sins. This is the most degraded of the three groups, says one commentator. Remember what Paul said to his child in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy? We covered it in the beginning of this study about the false teachers who, had crept into the, who would creep into the church. Evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, sadly, the spiritual children of these evil men mirror themselves. Truly, the wisdom of our Lord in Luke 6.40 is illustrated here when Jesus said, The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. And so it was with this third group who has now been in the clutches of these false teachers and have swallowed the glass whole. We must be careful with this third group. Having mercy with fear, lest we be tempted and fall ourselves. Do not think that the cunningness of the devil cannot affect you, even most mature Christian. The garments polluted by the flesh belong to them. Belong to this third group. Garments polluted by the flesh. And what this is intended to do with us, brothers and sisters, is to make us repulsed. We are warned to not see anything attractive in their speech. They have filthy garments, and in contrast, we have white robes. Again, look to our Lord's declaration to Sardis in Revelation 3. But this does not mean that they are hopelessly lost while they remain in this condition. I want you to turn now to Zechariah. I mentioned Jude, uh, I think, drawing on Zechariah previously with the encounter with Michael the archangel earlier in this epistle. And I believe now he's also invoking Zechariah with this imagery in Zechariah chapter 3. When he talks about, again, Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Zechariah 3, starting in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And then listen to what the angel, the Lord, says next about Joshua, the high priest. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Verse 3, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. You see the connection with Jude? And he was standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away. Is God able to do that with those in this third group? Yes, he is. 
Do we need to be careful when approaching this third group? Yes, we do. Are all of us called to approach this third group? It takes discernment. It takes maturity. It takes a biblical knowledge. I don't know how many of you have ever come across face-to-face -face those who are in cults. But if you have, consider one who's a sharp theologian of their cult. Do you think any Christian should go up against them? Do you think any warning should be given to the weakest in the church about going into this third category? Yes, we're not all called. But we, we all can pray. And this group can be saved. I have taken your iniquity away and will clothe you with festal robes. Oh, do you hear the echoes of Revelation 3? Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. All this talk about clothing. Clothing defiled, polluted, polluted by the flesh. Providentially, I was interested in our Old Testament reading this morning out of Numbers where it was given this command, whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves, you and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. It's a picture of Christ and the resurrection and the new creation. You shall purify yourselves every garment. You see, the Old Testament had a purification law that says if you touched anything unclean, you became unclean. This is what Jude is saying here. Have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh, lest you become unclean as a Christian. Lest you be contaminated. This is why we must be careful and proceed with wisdom in this third group. But why all this talk about garments? Why all this talk about defiled garments or white garments? This goes all the way back. Where is the first understanding we have of garments? And here is the gospel. For all of us who are sinking low in our seats, thinking, I don't care much in the past concerning those in the church who are doubting, those in the church who need saved, those who are in this third group especially, here's the gospel. It was given to you in Zechariah, where Christ takes his filthy garments off and gives him clean garments. This idea goes all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, to our first parents. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. That connects directly with Zechariah. That correct, connects directly with the idea of filthy garments, yet these garments are clean. Adam and Eve were clothed. Job says in Job 29, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. Yes, all of the righteous are clothed. What are they clothed in? If you're sitting here and you are a believer in Christ, what are you clothed in? Or more appropriately, who are you clothed in? Listen to the Pauline corpus. Romans 13. 
Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Jude could have said that. Or in Galatians 3.27, Paul says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Or Ephesians 4.24, And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Being clothed with Christ is receiving his righteousness. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ is coming to Christ and believing in him. But the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, in that last verse I read, Ephesians 4, 24, gave a blessed command that extends beyond our justification, beyond coming and believing to Christ for justification. It extends to our sanctification. Listen to it again. And put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So what does that look like? What does it look like to put on the Lord Jesus Christ in sanctification? Paul helps us with that as well. In another book he wrote, another epistle, using the same language, Colossians 3. Listen, if you have been raised with Christ... Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. That's what it means to be clothed with Christ, to put on the new man. Seek the things that are above. Keep your eyes fixed on things in heaven instead of things on earth. Seated at the right hand of God is where Christ is. That's where our attention should be. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, the second coming, or when you meet him at your own death, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So, skipping down, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, here is that put on language, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Maybe those who are doubting in that first category need to be forgiven. Maybe we need to ask forgiveness from them. Whoever has a complaint against anyone... Just as the Lord gave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love. See this put on language? This is what it means to put on the new man, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. As one theologian has said, live your whole life before the face of God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. 
So what does putting on the new self look like as we care for these three groups which Jude exhorts us to take action towards in the church? Well, if we were to wrap it up in one Pauline sentence again, it's in 1 Thessalonians 5. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Here is the pastoral conclusion of today's message. One that I no doubt know Pastor Perkins and I want you to hear and to treasure in your hearts as we leave this message. As we consider the work that we are called to do amongst those in the church. Also from Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. Is God going to be faithful to do that work to all of his children? Yes and amen. Even all of his children in one of those three groups? Yes and amen. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. Notice it says body. Yes, we're not waiting for an eternal state without our bodies. We're waiting for a new earth with new bodies. Amen? Amen. Without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Don't think that I'm saying that God is waiting on you and depending upon you to save the group in category number two. Or that if you don't go to category number three, even if you're providentially fit to do so, that they will perish, and if it wasn't for you, they would be alive. No, God is faithful to the ones he calls. And he also will bring it to pass. Now, as Pastor Perkins and I try to equip us as a congregation for these tasks as Christians in the church, as we seek to give you food week in and week out to help you go into your families, go into your workplaces, where other Christians may be who are forsaking the gathering, who are weak, who are doubting, who need to be saved, brands plucked from the fire, I conclude with Paul, And I'm sure I speak for Pastor Perkins too in verse 25. Brethren, pray for us. As a congregation, let us pray together that God would do this work. Father, we do thank you for what you've taught us out of the epistle of Jude this morning. Lord, as we consider building ourselves up by remembering what you have done in the past, what you are doing now, in what you have promised to do. As we consider the most holy faith that was passed from the apostles to us, as we pray in the Holy Spirit, as we keep ourselves in the love of God, as we wait anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ when he returns, we come with heavy hearts to this part that discloses to us what we ought to be doing now until you call us to glory having mercy on some who are doubting, saving others 
snatching them out of the fire and having mercy with fear, this third category, even hating the garment polluted by the flesh. Who is sufficient for these things in and of themselves? None of us. It is only by your spirit and your mercy and your kindness that we can be used as instruments in your hands for the preservation and the good of your people. Oh Lord, let us rest at the end of this message knowing that it is you who are building, who is building your church. And wonders of wonders that you would use us in this mighty work of God. May we desire to be used more greatly by you in humility and mercy as we seek to be agents of mercy in the church among those who need it. We ask all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.